As I was getting ready to record this episode, author Salman Rushdie was attacked on stage, nearly killed. I'm not only heartbroken, but I'm a bit shook. It's hard to live in a country, in a world for that matter, where people like me, who speak honestly about their past, about religion, about drugs, about social issues that counter the public narrative, where that's what we have to look forward to. If we're successful, if people listen to us, if we get an audience, we can look forward to being attacked by religious fundamentalists on stage. I'm heartbroken, and I really hope that this is something that's going to change soon. But for now, this episode's dedicated to Salman Rushdie and to free speech. Unfortunately, these days people have begun to fall into the trap of believing that it is right to limit freedom at that point that you were mentioning, the point of where other people don't like what you're saying. I'm just telling you that if you go down that road, nobody will be able to speak at all. Um, because everybody can object for whatever reason to somebody else, and you silence all speech. That's the consequence of that mindset. It is better to be in a world where people say what they want, and if you don't like it, you say so in return. That's, that's how the debate of an open society proceeds. Welcome. I am your host, Ben Boyce, drug user, prison educator, and big fan of alcohol. And that's what today's episode is about, alcohol. But it's about a lot more than that. Alcohol, it turns out, has a lot to teach us about human nature, social bonding, and even the recent pandemic. It also has a lot to teach us about religion. I know, I know, I'm always sliding religion in there. But that's because religion is a huge part of life. And to give it its fair due, it's also been a huge part of what has allowed humans to come together and build cultures from small bands of people who otherwise wouldn't have wanted to work together. That common goal, bizarre and anti-evidence as it often winds up being when it's aimed at religious ends, it was a powerful force of unity, a marker of in-group membership. It allowed early tribes of hunter-gatherers to get over their natural fear they would have had towards outsiders, and to begin building larger cultural connections. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's start at the beginning. Where did alcohol come from? Well, that one's easy. It's just partially rotten food. All alcohol. Ethanol and carbon dioxide are natural byproducts that come from fermenting grains, fruits, or vegetables with yeast or bacteria. Literally, rotten food. And there's a clue there to why humans enjoy alcohol so much. I talk about evolutionary theory a lot on this podcast. Not because I'm an expert, but just the opposite. I think a basic understanding of evolutionary theory is not only something that anyone can get a hold of, but that it's important to understanding why humans are the way we are. And alcohol is a good example of that, because it's pretty toxic. Almost 100,000 people die from alcohol-related problems in the United States every single year. Between 1999 and 2017, the number of reported alcohol-related deaths in the U.S. nearly doubled. And since COVID hit, the rates of alcohol use, along with the potency of the drinks that we're consuming, it's only gone higher. 
Almost a quarter of people surveyed claim they have increased their alcohol use over the past year as a means of coping with the stress of the pandemic. A full 8% of us in the US are physically dependent on alcohol right now. So what's that got to do with evolutionary theory? Well, quite a lot, it turns out, and in more ways than one. So let's pause this examination of where we're at right now and go back in time to figure out how we got here. Many species have enzymes that break alcohol down, you know, so it doesn't kill us by poisoning. But something like 10 million years ago, according to research that's unpacked in a 2014 article that I've linked in the episode description, a genetic mutation left some of our ancestors with the ability to process something like 40 times the booze of other animals. And something else was happening around that same time. A major climate disruption transformed the landscape of East Africa, where our ancestors lived, eventually causing mass extinction. Per the evolutionary rule of survival of the fittest, those that could consume partially rotten, fermented food off the forest floor without dying from the toxins in that alcohol, they were predisposed to survive when others died of starvation or poisoning. That theory actually makes a lot of sense from a basic evolutionary perspective. It answers the question, why would humans develop such a desire to consume a substance that so frequently leads to problems in our health and our well-being? Because our enjoyment of that substance is the only reason we're here at all. But evolution doesn't stop. And now that we live in a world where we don't have to consume booze to survive, and where that booze is now hazardous to our health, why haven't we followed our evolutionary arc back down the pathway of survival and slowly reduced our ability as humans to consume such large quantities of alcohol? That's where religion and pandemics come into today's episode. So fast forward through that mass extinction event from 10 million years ago, the one we survived because we could get drunk, and head forward to around 10 to 15,000 years ago, when humans were living in small bands of hunter-gatherers spread out across vast spaces of land. Agriculture began somewhere during this period, and with it came an increase in our ability to manufacture large amounts of alcohol if we chose to do so, because we had large amounts of grain, grapes, or other produce from agriculture. Edward Slingerland is the author of a book called Drunk, that had me right from the introduction, where he begins the book like this. People like to masturbate. They also like to get drunk and eat Twinkies. Not typically all at the same time, but that's a matter of personal preference. I totally recommend the book, and I might even invite him on to the show when I finish it. In that book, Slingerland argues, among other things, that both alcohol and religion helped humans to cooperate on a much larger scale than we ever could have or would have wanted to since we were hunter-gatherers. And we've arrived at the well-tread ground of religion, where in a world of hunter-gatherers, belief in a rule-enforcing God who is all-powerful accomplishes the dual trick of one, scaring people into following the social rules required for cultures to work, and two, answering unanswerable questions that might otherwise terrify us. Like why is that mountaintop blowing off? Or why is a flood washing away my house? Of course, this unifying element of religion is a pretty easy connection for most people to make. The ability to have something like faith would have been a benefit to survival back then. When everyone else gives up, 
the only people who keep going are those who have a reason to keep going. Like, say, an all-powerful God they don't quite understand, but know they must believe in. And sometimes those that keep going beyond hope, they make it, whereas those who give up die. Evolutionary theory. So groups who believed in some sort of God, and who all agreed amongst themselves on a shared story about that God, they would have had an easier time accepting and supporting one another, and as such, in building their cities and cultures faster and more securely than those around them. That's why religion stuck around. And that's why evolutionary theory is so important to making sense of who we are and where we came from. But religion is more than just a basic fear of punishment from on high. And it's more than just answers to unanswerable questions. There's a lot more that keeps people going to their churches and claiming their religious identities. A big part of it is that thing I spoke about in an early episode of this podcast with Dr. Michael Ferguson and Dr. Jeff Anderson, way back on episode 10, Religious Experience. As part of his PhD dissertation, Dr. Ferguson gave people brain scans while they were having what they considered to be religious experiences. And the results were far from simple, but they showed that people aren't just observers along for the ride in religious experience but rather that there's something happening that looks an awful lot like being in a large concert during a magical performance. You might think of it as group consciousness, the bliss of being social creatures who've discovered common ground. And of course, identity has a lot to do with it too, because once you begin to perform the role of religious group member, you become someone, something, that others expect you to continue being. So back to alcohol. Because I promise these two seemingly separate threads are a lot more connected than they might seem right now. Gobekli Tepe is an ancient city in eastern Turkey that appears to have been built sometime around 10,000 BC. That means it's almost twice as old as Stonehenge. But it's not dissimilar to Stonehenge in a lot of ways. Like the huge pieces of shaped rock that certainly took hundreds of people working together to haul them from a nearby quarry. Some of them are 20 metric tons. And like Stonehenge, these workers weren't doing all of this work to build homes or businesses. In fact, right now, archaeologists think that no one lived in Gobekli Tepe. No one farmed there. They came there to get fucked up. At least that's what Slingerland thinks. There are massive stone vats decorated with images of people dancing, which Slingerland and plenty of others who, as they often say, believe that beer came before bread, think were gathered and constructed by drunk partygoers who wanted to help make the party spot hot. Again, a lot of this is from the book Drunk, chapter 3 in this case, but you can find plenty of less colorful descriptions by just searching Gobekli Tepe. So the desire to feast and to drink, that would have been a big draw for hunter-gatherers anywhere nearby, and the message would have spread farther out year by year making the gatherings grow, hence the ability and the need to haul those huge stones and make bigger vats. But given the way that cultures and societies work, as soon as those structures and vats were built, Gobekli Tepe, and probably plenty of other early gathering spots just like it, they would have become legitimate places with rules, norms, and most importantly, people in charge of enforcing them. Gobekli Tepe was the original Las Vegas. 
It might look from the outside to be an outlaw's paradise where anything goes, but as someone who spent a ton of time in Vegas, I can tell you it's got a huge police presence to keep both tourists and locals in line. It's not the anything goes city that the media often makes it out to be. So per the theory, which has that fun name, beer before bread, humans needed to bond in large groups if we were ever going to form large cultures and societies. And alcohol was vital to those original bonds. It was sort of a shortcut to the blissful state of openness that often takes a long time to create from scratch when you're with a group of strangers. Alcohol does a lot in the brain and the body. Dr. Judith Grizzle called it a sledgehammer in her book, Never Enough, suggesting that it's so widespread in its actions, it's hard to really describe it effectively. But some of the most obvious things it does, the reason people enjoy drinking it so much, is what we think of as that lowered inhibition. It suppresses the activity of our overthinking, future-oriented prefrontal cortex, allowing us to stay in the moment so we have an easier time letting go of whatever else is going on in our lives and just having fun. But once we're in that state of mind, per the stories we tell around the campfire out at earshot of the kids, we often do a lot of other things that help us bond even more or that help us bond for real beyond the alcohol. It actually initiates a process that keeps going once the alcohol runs out, friendship. But like all drugs, Alcohol does not work in a bubble. It works in the world, which means biological effects are only the beginning, and they wind up causing us to do things that lead to more biological effects. We bond, artificially at first, by using the chemicals to loosen up, but then by telling jokes, sharing stories, proposing business ventures, or doing risky things together, like hauling massive stones from a nearby quarry so you and your friends can build a bigger booze vat. This is actually still a reality today. In another article that I've also linked in the episode description, Robin Dunbar found that those who regularly visit bars are happier and more fulfilled in their lives than those who don't. But not because they drink more. It's because they have more friends, which is probably a big part of why they're going to the bar in the first place, to see them. Once there, they might have a few drinks, and then they get to socializing. They build relationships. So here's the direct link to religion. Earlier in our evolutionary history, and on into this era to be sure, humans would have done well in groups that agreed on similar ideas and definitions of God. Those who prayed together stayed together. And with the creation of places like Gobekli Tepe, those who drank together would have also stayed together. But unlike the rigidity that religious ideology forces, that's kind of the point, to explain the unexplainable and offer answers that can't be challenged with mere evidence, alcohol did the opposite. It offered that same stress release, that same social bonding, but with a bonus of creativity, buzzed epiphany, and a lowering of inhibitions that allowed people to question what before they may have felt was unquestionable. So in evolutionary language, the drunk tribes would outwit and outplay the religious tribes. What was once an evolutionary advantage purely for survival, alcohol, became a social advantage for cultural growth. But there's an important caveat here. Two, actually. This was before liquor was a thing. So people were drinking low-level wine and beer. 
And even more importantly, they were mostly drinking in those big bonding groups, never alone. This was, relatedly, also before evangelical churches, sectarian violence, or Nike cults. Google that last one if you're younger than 40 and don't know what I'm talking about. And this was also when social bonding and religion went together, since everyone in a large group would normally settle on a shared set of religious facts, more or less. And here you can probably figure out where I'm headed with this line of thought, and why religion and alcohol are indeed connected, especially when you look at what happens when they become more potent and lose their social bonding value, like has happened with both during the last hundred years. Things have changed, and all of the positive effects which alcohol once provided, they were related to how we consumed it, differently than we consume it now. See, I told you the seemingly unconnected threads of alcohol, religion, and pandemics would all line up in the end. Distilled alcohol is recent. It didn't become widespread in China until the 1400s, and it didn't get popular in Europe until the 1700s. What we had been drinking, beer or wine, were usually between 4-10% to alcohol. And as most beer drinkers can tell you, it's not very easy to get smashed accidentally on a 5% liquid. You have to try really hard. I only drink beer, and part of that has to do with its built-in buffer. It keeps me in that nice, friendly social state with lowered inhibitions without a big risk of over-medicating. But as a kid who couldn't wait to dabble in the forbidden, I was excited to drink the 190-proof Everclear I'd heard so much about. And when I did, I didn't spend much time in that social buzzed area where I might have met some new people or found some common grounds with new friends. I skipped directly past that to the smashed, goofy drunk phase. And the social things we might otherwise have done, they were exchanged for throwing up, falling down, and passing out. Sticking with this theme, which would later be ignored in the blueprints for the drug war, that social use of less potent chemicals is far less dangerous than using super strong chemicals by ourselves. Things changed as we moved into a more recent culture where alcohol use became less of a social leisurely thing and instead became a solitary activity. Think about bars, where instead of sitting in a circle and facing others around a fire or a table, you just face the bartender. Or worse, nowadays you just face your phone. Or you can grab a drink to go in places like Vegas, or nowadays the central districts of many cities, including Denver. But it's more than that. It's everywhere. You can drink at baseball games, supermarkets, movie theaters, hair salons, Starbucks and other restaurants, airplanes, and even university campuses. They all serve alcohol. None of these establishments are necessarily bad for us, but they do pose a problem if we continue to replace social connections with solitary medication. These sorts of alcohol-related problems are largely a U.S. phenomena. Places like Italy, for example, where alcohol is so common it's almost a stereotype, they still have some of the lowest alcoholism rates on earth. It's because of how they drink, socially, in public, and while doing other things like eating. They also tend to stick with beer and wine, avoiding that rapid intoxication that can come with liquor. And socially, unlike much of the United States, where parties and nightclubs are places we go to get sloshed, 
Drinking to get drunk in Italy is looked down on by most people. So is drinking alone. Contrast that with the United States, and you can see the problem. The U.S. has a long history with alcohol, and a lot of that history has been really problematic. The Mayflower landed at Plymouth Rock, far north of where they were headed, the Hudson Bay, because the pilgrims were going through their supplies, especially their beer, too fast. Of course, half of them died that winter because of where they were at, not the Hudson Bay. But by that point, they were brewing beer again. So those who survived at least had that going for them. George Washington won his re-election to the House of Burgesses, one of the first elective bodies in colonial Virginia, by getting voters drunk on something like 150 gallons of booze in 1758. During the Revolutionary War, Washington kept troops fighting by keeping them drunk. And later in life, he ran a large-scale whiskey distillery. And throughout this entire period, you can note a slow, steady move away from the social drinking of beer and wine and towards solitary drinking of spirits, like whiskey. By 1830, the average U.S. adult drank more than nine gallons of hard liquor every year. We were drinking alone, at home, and far away from others because of the vastness of the landscape. All that little house on the prairie stuff. We also drank a lot of hard cider, too. Something like a barrel per family per week, including the kids. And as the booze got stronger, the social connections continued to evaporate, and we started to have some real problems. From here, the history probably gets a bit less foggy if you know much about early drug and alcohol laws in the United States. The temperance movement gained steam throughout the 1800s, in many ways spurred on by what was actually pretty dangerous drinking habits. It came to a head in 1919 with the passage of the 18th Amendment, which outlawed the sale of alcohol nationwide. But the United States isn't a moral arc so much as it's a moral pendulum. We seldom make slow, steady movement on any issue so much as we swing wildly back and forth from, say, abortion rights to states' rights, from wokeness is good to wokeness is bad, from sicking police dogs on black men to trying to clean up our act, and from ratifying an amendment that bans the sale of alcohol just 14 years before ratifying another one to undo the work of the first. I was born in 1980, almost 50 years after alcohol sales were re-legalized, and by that time, drinking rates in the United States had gone back up. They actually hit pre-prohibition levels in the early 1970s when many states lowered their drinking age from 21 to 18. Drinking levels peaked in the United States in 1981, and that's when the pendulum started to swing back, and we did what we've done with tobacco in the past. We started taxing and warning labeling the crap out of it, and we raised the drinking age back to 21. Plus, drunk driving started to be prosecuted a lot more often, and the penalties went up. And that did lower drinking rates a little bit, around 20% by the 1990s. So here we are, 30 years later and going on four years into a pandemic which has turned back up our solitary drinking. And it's also turned up our solitary religiosity. Although I think that, like alcohol, our religiosity has actually been going through a long process of divorce from regular social use. Instead of getting together with large groups of other religious folks with various perspectives, and instead of discussing important topics before we come to a conclusion, 
Religious folks in the early 2000s started to go their own way and to either break apart into smaller churches where everyone agreed with them or to just stop going to church altogether except for special holidays. That solitary use became problematic use. Meanwhile, the potency of religion went up. I grew up in the evangelical church and I could say all sorts of bad things about them, but I could also say quite a few good things about them. But something odd has happened, something I really think lines up with this episode's topic. Between the 1990s, when I was there, and the 2020s, when the church turned Trump, the acceptable potency of the drug went through the roof at the same time as the social networks dissolved. It used to be too much for a rich, braggadocious leader to try to gain the support of the church. We all read Jesus' story about a camel entering the eye of a needle being easier than a rich man getting into heaven. It used to be impossible for an adulterer to be accepted without repenting, or for someone who tells lies all the time to not be held accountable and for the church to expect them to repent or be dethroned. We had no space back then for people who plastered their names on buildings, or who called other people with less money or power mean names. The prospect of someone who publicly brags about not repenting to Jesus gaining the uncritical support of the church, it would have made me laugh. Those things were too much, too potent for our beer and wine palates, largely because we knew those around us wouldn't put up with it even if we wanted to. We balanced each other out. But as we all went home, we cracked open the booze of religion, and by 2016, the church was ready to look past the dangers of that form of religion and to do so in small, fragmented groups who get a lot of their news and spiritual food from online sources or from televangelists who are making money off of their beliefs. Yet another potent form of religion that really picked up steam throughout the 1990s. The social is gone, replaced with an individual experience that leaves people beholden to their own human tendencies of confirmation bias and conspiracy theory. And here we are, smack in a world trying to come back from that and watching people fighting from their foxholes of booze and religion. And when you're in that place, whether it's drunk day and night, struggling to sleep and losing sight of everything else around you, or it's religiously walled off from the world, eagerly awaiting the apocalypse so you can take up arms and start killing people like me who don't agree with you, that's a hard spot to get yourself out of. So as difficult as it can be for those of us who aren't in that place to show love to those who are, I think we have to find a way to do just that. People who are stuck in religious or political echo chambers are in the same place as people who are stuck in the rut of any addiction. The only difference is there isn't a cultural framework for acknowledging it, nor is there any sort of cultural mandate right now for avoiding harming others with your religious behavior. Maybe it's time to create one. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce.